A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm wondering why are we talking about the triple lot? Why are we not talking about the hair-raising pensions played to the public sector? It's no surprise to me that the Tories are making signs that they may not put the triple lock in their election manifesto. There's no way that we can just say we're all going to go electric. It's just not going to happen. It amounts to really a pulverising burden on the current working age population. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Keir Starmer has a new nickname for Rishi Sunak, Inaction Man. Levelling up Secretary Michael Gove has hit back for the Tories, calling the Labour leader the original origami politician. When he comes under pressure, he folds. The no 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 name calling is the latest evidence that a general election is in the offing. With Labour some 18 points ahead in the polls, the Tories need a miracle to win outright in a contest likely to be in the spring or autumn next year. Meanwhile, Alison, a former Foreign Office Permanent Secretary, has revealed that the Foreign Office was, quote, in mourning <laughs> after the UK voted to leave the European Union in 2016. People were in tears, we're told. Whatever happened to an independent civil service? There's been a wave of investments into the UK's car making industry, specifically to make electric vehicles or EVs. But is this really the best technology? And why aren't the punters buying them? The UK economy is now shrinking, kind of, in the midst of an oil price surge. It may be that inflation goes up again before it comes back down. But let's start with that triple lock, Alison. We've both got years, of course, before we start drawing the basic state pension. Of course we do. (laughs) But what do you make of the state spending £10 billion on a single year's pension upgrade? Some of us are going to be claiming it sooner than others, co-pilot. I wasn't going to mention that. I was quite looking forward to mine, but every time I approach the deadline, they just push it back. So it's yeah. going to be collected at 85 before you pop your clogs, isn't it? Oh, goodness. I feel very mixed feelings about this, really. As you say, Liam, the state pension is expected to rise above £11,000 for the first time in April. You'll understand the nitty-gritty better than me, but it's essentially, isn't it, that pay and bonuses particularly rose by 8.5% in the three months to July. And, And I didn't quite comprehend, but the state pension is guaranteed to increase every year, by whichever of these is the largest, and that's inflation in September, wage growth, or 2.5%. So basically, if the earnings growth outstrips inflation this month, it will push the state pension up. Although it has to be said, co-pilot, a lot of money, no doubt the government and the taxpayer spending a lot of money on it, but it's not particularly generous, our pension. 
compared to pensions of other countries in the rich world. But I suppose what I'm thinking about is it's tit for tat, isn't it? It's are the younger generation hard done by? Let's take let's take some money off the old people. But let's not forget that lots of these elderly people claiming the pension, I think 12 and a half million people receiving the state pension at the moment. But but lots of them are not living in the lap of luxury, Lee. And we hear an awful lot, don't we, about all these pensioners with million-pound houses. That's not a lot. There's about 18% of pensioners living in pensioner poverty. So I'm quite concerned about this. I'm quite concerned about taking money. I don't think 200 quid a week is a particularly generous sum. We'll come on to this a bit later, but we've just seen the Prime Minister in India, the G20, generously donating 1.62 billion of our money to some global climate change fund, a bit less generous at home towards ordinary people. And, and the other thing I would just say is that I would look this up. We've gone and done a bit of Velma research for once. <laughs> we haven't had Stevie for a while, have we? So the public sector pensions, some of these incredibly stupefyingly generous pensions, yeah, and astonishingly, government accounts reveal that the cost of pensions for public sector workers, including all those marvellously impartial civil servants, doctors and teachers, increased to $2.3 trillion in 2020-21, which was higher than the size of the UK economy at the time. So that is a huge, huge burden to the taxpayer. We're on the hook for a huge amount of that bill. I'm wondering why we're we talking about the triple lot, why we're we not talking about the hair-raising pensions played to the public sector at a time when many people working in the private sector are not able to get a pension at all. And then finally, Liam, let me just say that there are 5.4 million people of working age who aren't in any kind of employment and they're claiming benefits from the state as well. Should we be picking on pensioners? So we need to distinguish, of course, between the basic state pension that's paid to everybody and what you're talking about just at the end there, public sector pensions, they're occupational pensions for people who've worked in the public sector. And yet the liability is absolutely enormous. It's 100% of GDP, though, of course, that liability will be paid out over many, many years. But our public sector pensions, because we have no, we put no money aside, we just pay for them out of basic general taxation. It's an absolute scandal, one I've written about a lot over the years. As, as far as the basic state pension is, is concerned, the reason it's come to the fore is that last year, Inflation in September was about 10%. So this April, there was a 10% increase in the basic state pension. And now wages with bonuses are 8.5%. If that figure is used, then that will be another whacking great increase. So pension costs for the basic state pension, they're set to go up to £135 billion by 2025. That's more than we spend on education. This is a single benefit. It's twice what we spend on defence. This single year's upgrade will cost £10 billion, as I said, which is the equivalent of 2p on the basic rate of income tax. So in this country, we spend a huge amount on the basic state pension, but it isn't actually very high, as you rightly say, because it's completely universal. We give it to everybody. A lot of people I know use their basic state pension for their wine fund or for their skiing fund. So it's because it's... I 
think the triple lock should be dismantled with respect. I think it's far too expensive. And I think the government should be targeting benefits more on pensioners who need it most. Now, a lot of Planet Normal listeners will go ballistic at that thought. But this is costing so much money. Beverage was around in a very different time in the mid-1940s going into the 50s. The demography of Britain was very different. It was a much, much younger country. Now, because we've got so many more pensioners for every person working, and because the basic state pension is paid for out of general taxation, then it amounts to really a pulverising burden on the current working age population, many of whom, of course, can't get on the housing ladder. They've got student loans. They haven't got workplace occupational pensions, whether in the private or the public sector, as many of today's pensioners have, and they're getting a bit cheesed off about it. And that's why I think the government should be spending more on the pensioners who really need it and less on the pensioners who frankly don't need a basic state pension at all because it's not as if you paid into your basic state pension there is no fund okay it's not a funded pension there's no pot of money that's being invested on your behalf it's a pay-as-you-go pension it's a mad way to run pension systems but it's the way we seem to do our pensions in the state sector here in the uk and it's no surprise to me that the Tories are making signs that they may not put the triple lock in their election manifesto. And even Angela Rayner, the sort of left-wing firebrand deputy Labour leader at the trade union conference earlier this week, Alison, she wouldn't confirm if Labour even would back the triple lock. And so this is very much in play. But look, no one is going to lose their pension. We must be completely clear here. Planet Normal listeners are smart people, but we just have to say, this is not about taking pensions away. This is about the basic state pension up, pension going up by less than 8.5%, having just gone up by 10%. I think a compromise would be to use the 7.8 figure, which was wage growth without bonuses, because the massive increase in the figure with bonuses up to 8.5, that was largely driven by the fact that a lot of, again, public sector people got one-off bonuses, not least across the NHS. So should that those one-off single year bonuses really be baked in to the basic state pension forever it's definitely worth a debate it is but i did laugh because when you see that as you say some of this the sort of the increase has been dictated by these bonuses to the civil service and the nhs you think oh my god what is going on liam is anyone in the civil service actually working the country's over a barrel with lots of these people i'm just contrasting the munificence of the state towards its own employees compared to many people we hear from on Planet Normal who are running their own small businesses and struggling to get by and certainly not in a position to be putting masses aside for a pension as they try to keep their small workforce going. And and coming back to this now, I think, perennial theme of government mismanagement, Norway, we know, had a sovereign wealth fund. Is that right? You're going to correct me in a minute, I know. No, absolutely, yeah. But Norway actually put some of its North Sea oil revenue into this sovereign wealth fund. So it is actually got a kind of pot there into which which it goes in to take out its pensions, not like us doing everything on the fly, everything on just winging a prayer, which we see, I think, I'm afraid, across so much of government now. And I do feel, why should pensioners pay the price for having rubbish government? And just to say to Planet Normal listeners, 
our venerable colleague at The Telegraph, Philip Johnston. Phil has written an excellent piece, which we can put in the show notes, and it's on this topic. It's not just the triple lock that faces oblivion, but the state pension itself. Can we afford it? And of course, Phil's been around for a long time. Liam, he's now a pensioner himself, and he just gives you textbook analysis, pointing out, of course, that the triple lock only came in 13 years ago under the coalition government. It feels like some sort of sacred text out of an Indiana Jones movie, doesn't it? But in fact, it wasn't that long ago that it was introduced. And Philip points out that that we are now, we just are living 20 or 30 years after retirement. And as I joked at the beginning, the, the age when I'm going to be able to collect my pension is just receding into the near distance. But can the country pay uh, for uh, pensions for people for 20 or 30 years when my, my grandmother lived quite a long time, but my grandfather, Welsh grandfather, expected his three score years and 10, which is just about what he got. And that's changed drastically, hasn't it? So we've gone from people pretty much living to 70 to it's wonderful. It's absolutely brilliant that we get the benefit of the older generation for a lot longer. But as Philip says in his excellent column, how can we possibly afford it? So I think that's going to be another nubbly issue confronting us. So when it comes to public sector pensions, Alison, it's no wonder they're generous because the people who make policy in that area, MPs and civil servants, all, of course, have public sector occupational pensions. And while we're talking about the civil service, I know you were tickled pink by words from Simon MacDonald in an interview, a former perm sec at the Foreign Office, no less, uh, between 2015 and 2020, And he said that the main feeling in the Foreign Office after this 2016 referendum, when the UK voted to leave the European Union, was one of mourning. People were in tears. People were in shock. And this has got a lot of people's heckles up Mm. because we're meant to have an independent civil service, aren't we? An impartial civil service. And just stirring the pot a little bit more, Simon MacDonald, of course, was the chap who, having retired, then issued a statement that helped to oust Boris Johnson because uh, he contr- contradicted Number 10's line that the PM knew nothing about investigations into Chris Pincher, he of future Trivial Pursuit questions, almost anonymous government operative and MP uh, who basically became the catalyst for Boris Johnson's departure because he kept getting caught in scandal. And the question was, did the Prime Minister know about these scandals before he appointed him Deputy Chief Whip? No, said Number 10. Yes, said Simon MacDonald, because we warned him. So what do you make of the fact that a former perm sec, who now, of course, nicely ensconced as the master of a Cambridge college, can say with a sort of glint in his eye, almost boasting to former colleagues that the Foreign Office was in mourning and this is why I had to speak out against Boris Johnson. You won't be surprised to hear, Liam, that I've added Simon McDonald to my, my, my growing list of people I'd like to slap. Crikey. <laughs> I hear you want to slap the Prime Minister. You wrote that in your column today, I do, you? I do. That's another, the Prime Minister going splashing our cash on absurd <laughs> international <laughs> green projects. He, he wants a good slapping. And this one, <laughs> Lord McDonald of Salford, 
had he said, had he made this admission that he had breached this sort of civil service code of impartiality by saying to colleagues in the Foreign Office, on this solitary occasion, I decided to tell my colleagues and therefore let ministers know that I voted to remain in the European Union. I'm sure that was a huge shock. He was so pleased with himself. He had a kind of impish smirk. That is not, that was not his job. That was very much that he was, what he was describing was extremely unprofessional conduct. Now, I should say, although you and I were keen Brexiteers co-pilot, I have many friends who voted Remain. Me too. <laughs> Almost everyone I love in the world voted <laughs> yes, Remain. voted Remain, exactly. And I, I completely understand that. And I understand why you would vote for the status quo. And there was more risk in backing what we were advocating. But what is not acceptable is we know that after the vote, people basically did their damnedest to derail the vote, to impugn those of us who had millions of people, 17 million people who'd voted in good conscience for this decision. It was a monstrous act against democracy. And I think what I think now you know, what this story, it's just one of many stories, isn't it? It's, is it time now to end the pretense of a politically neutral civil service and start letting winning parties bring in their own people to run Whitehall? Because essentially what we've had, I think, since the Blair years is we've had a parallel Labour government in Whitehall, which has absolutely round the clock been undermining the democratic mandate given to the Conservative government. And we saw it with Priti Patel at the Home Office. We've seen left-wing progressives dominating Britain's permanent government. And they seem to have increasingly little compunction about imposing their views on elected representatives. Yeah, on Brexit, I mean, it's important I state this. A lot of people in my life don't actually understand. I was really very much, I could have gone one way or the other before the Brexit referendum. I've never wanted the UK to be in the European single currency. I think that would be a very unstable situation. But I could see good arguments for staying in the EU, just as I could see good arguments for leaving the EU. And in the end, on balance, just about, I voted to leave. The the main reason being was democracy. I didn't like the way... The Commission in particular, the EU in general, stitched up votes, qualified majority voting. I didn't like the way they tried to reverse referenda in Ireland and and France and Denmark and elsewhere. But when I started to get hot under the collar about Brexit, when, as you say, Alison, MPs who'd stood on election manifestos that their party, whether Tory or Labour, would implement the Brexit referendum results, MPs plus a lot of civil servants who were meant to be paid to implement the democratic will were, they weren't just talking about a second referendum. They were actively trying to bring one about by sabotaging the ability of an increasingly febrile government to implement that vote. And a lot of what happened during those Brexit wars, the damage has been done. The damage is still there. The damage is still undermining the ability of any elected government to make use of those new Brexit freedoms. I'm thinking about the so-called Windsor framework in Northern Ireland, previously the backstop. But that's a long and complicated story. So I was never a sort of really fervent, keen Brexiteer. I was Brexit on balance for all kinds of technical and democratic reasons. I don't like customs unions in particular, having studied them a lot as a graduate student of economics. 
But it was that reversal, that attempted reversal, that disdain for ordinary people that really got my goat when you had MPs who pretend to represent people, red wall MPs, Labour red wall MPs were the worst because some of them were really honourable. Caroline Flint, like my good friend Gloria De Piero, these were red wall Labour MPs, both now left the Commons, but they would not take part in this attempt to reverse Brexit. And they kept speaking out. And the kind of Islington tendency of their party, particularly Starmer and Emily Thornbury, kept saying to them, you're mad, you're mad, we can't go through with Brexit and disdain them. Frank Field was disdained massively as an MP when he was trying to stop the reversal of Brexit. And as far as the political and media class is concerned, the civil service was really at the centre of these attempts to stop Brexit. And I personally think that's completely disgraceful. And so when Simon MacDonald, Baron of Salford or wherever he's the (laughs) Baron from, gives a newspaper article where he's basically laughing and guffawing about this as if it's just some trivial thing. It's not, mate, because you and your ilk tried to reverse democracy before it had even been implemented. And that was completely outrageous. That was completely outrageous. And we did massive damage to the social fabric of this country and the political culture of this country. And that damage is still there. And people like Simon MacDonald were a big reason for that damage. War in Ukraine is reshaping our world. Since the first week of the war, the Telegraph's team of experts in London and correspondents on the ground have been analysing Putin's invasion every weekday on the Ukraine The Latest podcast. With over 50 million listens and downloads, Ukraine The Latest is the go-to source for up-to-date analysis on the war from every angle. Military, humanitarian, political, economic and historical, to name just a few. In each episode, we unpack the past 24 hours of the war, as well as regularly being joined on the pod by our on-the-ground correspondents and guests who take us into their own experiences. Search for Ukraine The Latest in the same place you're listening to this podcast and follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Now it's time for our Planet Normal interview. Amidst growing alarm about the government's new energy bill with its powers to impose draconian penalties on householders who don't cut their consumption in line with the net zero target, people like co-pilot Halligan unloading their dishwasher at the wrong time of night. That sort of miscreant. (laughs) You're always wrong. Don't do your washing in the day. That's all I can say. Anyway, I thought it would be really interesting to hear from one of the plucky few MPs who voted against that dubious bill. Carl McCartney is the Conservative MP for Lincoln, a beautiful cathedral city where co-pilot Pearson attended sixth form. Carl was first elected at the 2010 general election, representing the constituency until 2017 when he was defeated by Labour. A keen Brexiteer and Boris Johnson supporter, Carl triumphantly took Lincoln back in the 2019 general election. Born in Birkenhead in 1968, Carl studied at the University of Wales in Lampeter, where he was president of the Student Union, as well as captain of the Welsh University's first 11 football team. 
He's held a wide variety of jobs, starting as glass boy at the busiest pub in the northwest, a plasterer in the family firm and a management consultant in the city of London. Carl has served on the influential 1922 Committee of Conservative Backbench MPs, becoming Parliamentary Under Secretary of State at the Department for Transport in 2022. As a member of the Transport Select Committee, Carl McCartney has been a trenchant critic of the government's rush to net zero, ever mindful of the burdens and costs to his Lincoln constituents. In a recent call to arms, Carl McCartney said the government's electric vehicle target was both unrealistic and dangerous. It should be scrapped fast. He also warned that there were huge risks in stopping cars and vans being made from 2030 that use normal petrol and diesel engines. So I began by asking Carl McCartney, what are those huge risks? Yeah, the Conservative government need to be more realistic. My view is that there's 35 million vehicles on the road currently. A very small proportion are electric vehicles or battery electric vehicles. And there's a few hydrogen as well, but predominantly they're internal combustion engines. And I believe that they're going to be here for quite some time. And I think that the, you know, the Conservative government has been led by the nose in some respects by EV evangelists, as I've termed them on the Transport Select Committee, who are just taking us down a route that isn't realistic. There's a number of different solutions and options of which electric vehicles is one, but actually internal combustion engines are going to be with us for quite some time. You can't just replace 35 million vehicles. And for my constituents in Lincoln, you know, the average salary is quite a lot lower than it is in the bubble of London. And the average salary means that for most of my constituents, a new car is the equivalent of a seven, eight-year-old Ford Mondeo that's either diesel or petrol. It's just not realistic to expect my constituents who actually need cars, parts of my constituency, you're not going to be able to go to the cinema or a restaurant or out in the evening or to a council meeting without using, you know, taxis or private vehicles because there isn't the public transport system in place to, to enable that. You also said the net zero credo has left us isolated and exposed. It shows how the government and policymakers have been captured by green zealots and the metropolitan elite. Can you give us some examples of the way that government has been captured by the green zealots? And what do you think are the implications of that for Lincoln and the rest of the country? Obviously, I'm quite interested in transport, and I, I could bang on just about transport, really, but I'm going to take it to the wider you know, energy. We've gone down the route of installing you know, wind farms, and there's recently been change in policy, um, whether that's going to allow them to become um, land-based. I think there's a route and a road that we really don't want to go down. You know, looking at Lincolnshire, I think it's 50% of the applications for solar panel farms are in three counties, one of which is Lincolnshire. And I know my colleagues, even in their safe seats, are coming under quite a lot of pressure from their local constituents and residents who really aren't happy with good, productive, food-growing land being turned over to solar panel farms, which... Yes, you could say, well, maybe there's a need, but there's incentives and subsidies that big American firms and other firms from elsewhere are utilising and taking you know, UK taxpayers' money to produce electricity from solar panel farms when actually we should be producing food in my books, and I think my colleagues would feel the same. You can't safely and easily hold that charge that's created by the wind farms or solar panel farms. It's got to be used. And that's one of the reasons why the experts in green energy, if you like, say, oh, well, it's a cheaper way of producing electricity. Well, no, it isn't, actually, because whether you've got gas turbines, nuclear or whatever else you might have, it's always got to be on standby. And starting up you know, gas turbines from standstill 
or nuclear reactors is not easily or cheaply or quickly doable. But that's what we're being forced to do by those who are saying that we need to produce as much of our electricity requirements in this country through electricity. How did the upper echelons of the Conservative Party come to be taken over by green zealots, do you think? Do you, do you have any, any theory as to how that happened? I think there's a lot of virtue signalling and it's seen as the de rigueur type issue to get on your high horse about. And I don't particularly see the internal combustion engines bad. If you look at where we were, you know, back in, say, the late 90s, research and development of petrol and diesel engines was continuing at pace. And you think of the, the, you know, the bigger companies were spending a lot of money refining so we, I don't want to call them the greenies, but the, those who are, who, have, um, who are green evangelists said, well, we've got to go down the route of, of electricity being the, the way forward for everything. Think, well, yeah, but where's the electricity got to come from? And it can't just be produced continually by, by wind power or by solar panel, power in the UK, because unfortunately we don't have constant wind and we certainly don't have strong sunlight um, for most of the year either. So we can't turn our backs on the the energy that's powered our economy. And I just see the economic impacts for the country being catastrophic if we carry on down the route that we're going down. Not just with looking at vehicles and where things might go with that, but actually just looking at, you know, the lights going off or factories not being able to run as often and as profitably as, as they possibly could do when energy prices are going through the roof. Carl, you were a long-standing member of the Transport Select Committee. I know you had a big hand in the Fueling the Future report, which was published in March this year. Now, the report asked how we as a nation are going to fuel transport in the future and whether our country was ready for this seismic change. And I'll just quote you a bit. We remain concerned that the government has not fully thought through or properly responded to our scepticism about expecting ordinary motorists to bear the financial burden of transitioning to all electric vehicles. We maintain that it is realistic and fair to expect a significant number of motorists to continue using hybrid or conventional engine cars for years ahead. Synthetic low-carbon fuels that can be used in these engines without expensive modification should be supported as a halfway house for a significant number of private car owners. But the response from the Department of Transport to that report was initially so woeful, I understand, that you had to send back a message telling the Secretary of State to please have another go at answering the very realistic and pertinent points made in the report. Carl, would I be far wrong if I said the British government's net zero transport target is basically a wing and a prayer? Well, I don't think you'd be far off from that. And what you just quoted there was exactly, it took a long time to get my colleagues, you know, there's some colleagues on the Transport Select Committee who get it and perhaps approach the subject from the same angle as I do. But, you know, we had to force the issue to to go down the route of having an inquiry and looking at fueling the future. And you said it was there, the, the woeful response, not only during the witness sessions, but actually from the Department for Transport. And it's not the complete Department of Transport, there's some, because having spent a short time as a minister in the department, there was some who were very pleased to, to hear me speak from the heart about what I believed in, because they chimed with that. They, they've got it. They know that actually we can't all go to electric vehicles. There's, one, there's not just the raw materials. There's also not the energy capacity, either in our infrastructure or um, in producing it uh, in the UK either. The government didn't want to answer because they were between a rock and a hard place, I think, I think, in if they did answer, they'd have had to 
put their hands up and say, yes, we know we're not being realistic, but actually, I'm not going to take to say I told you so, but I think, you know, those of us who are looking at it with more rounded and clear lenses are seeing that, you know, there's no way that we can just say we're all going to go electric. It's just not going to happen. And it can't happen. There's no way you can do that unless you're going to, you know, basically close down the country and stop everybody being able to, to drive where they want to go. And there's all sorts of different um, arguments about freedom of movement and etc. and people's liberties that we could get into. Um, and I think, you know, for 17-year-olds and 18-year-olds and people who are lucky enough to take their test quite early and then have the freedom of being able to travel in a in a car, they already pay an awful lot, whether that's in what used to be called road tax or tax that's paid for on petrol and diesel at the pumps. So all those people are paying an awful lot of money for the privilege of being able to, to drive on UK roads. And I don't think we should be we should be stopping people being able to do that. If we force everybody down the route of having to purchase or hire or borrow or lease an electric vehicle, it's going to become a, a very upper class. You know, we're going to be going back to the sort of early 1920s. If we use class systems, make it a very upper class pursuit uh, or hobby, which I don't think is where we need to be in the 21st century at all. But what you're talking about, I mean, you speak in a very, very measured and delightful way, Carl. But what you're talking about here, this couldn't be more serious, could it? We're literally talking about cloud cuckoo land being brought to bear on our energy and transport system, a, a policy which the government is pursuing and God knows Labour Party pursuing to an even greater extent, which is not fully thought through. Now, you did say to me that you thought that there were members of the cabinet who agree with you. I have privately spoken to a number of senior colleagues who know that it's madness. Well, unfortunately, policy for the Conservative government has been captured, if you like, by the Climate Change Committee. And and some of them on there, I don't want to say they're all zealots, but some of them are less reasonable than lots of others. And yes, some of my colleagues in Cabinet have you know, privately expressed their view that chimes with many realists in the Conservative Party. And most of us as politicians are pragmatic and we realise that, you know, there's changes required. But with with any change and management of change, there are costs, not just in a financial sense, but in, you know, politically, there's also costs as well. You know, just look at the Labour Party. They'd have loved to have taken Rysip and, and Uxbridge as a seat in a by-election recently and didn't. You can basically stick that on the door of ULES. But that's coming right across the country. Well, it it already happened in, in other cities. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if even places like Lincoln were looking at it. So, as you say, in the recent Uxbridge by-election, we saw how the Conservative candidate, by opposing ULES and sticking up for the ordinary motorist, could pay dividends for the, the Tories. Now, Professor Matt Goodwin says his latest polling suggests that scepticism of expensive net zero commitments unites the 2019 Tory coalition. So that's both red wall and blue wall voters share deep misgivings about the cost of hitting the net zero targets. Why is the government apparently deaf to its own voters, Carl? I have no idea because some of us behind the scenes have been banging on on this subject for quite some time. And it shouldn't be any surprise what Professor Matt Goodwin's come up with and lots of others because we knock on doors. You know, in Lincoln, we have yearly elections for the city council and every fourth year for the county. I'm continually well, listening to my constituents as well as talking to them about the realities of living, yes, in Lincoln in an urban environment, but a, a rural surrounding county. And... I think many Conservative members of Parliament and members of associations 
you know, wring their hands and, and shake their heads at some of the things that our colleagues perhaps who certainly enmeshed and live and seem to habit the Westminster bubble stroke London bubble and the fact they need to get out more and they certainly need to get out more and get up north more. You know, over 80% of people in the north who go to work do at least a proportion, but usually the vast majority of their commute in a private car. And expecting people to be able to jump on a bus or a tram or a train, it's not in the world of, of realism, is it? It's just not going to happen. Is anyone in the government, I mean, I know you're doing it, but is anyone else actually yelling at them and saying, have you got any idea how disastrously wrong this is going to go? Sometimes I do want to yell at them, as do some of my colleagues on the Transport Select Committee and elsewhere on other committees, because we get it. And although, you know, I, I can argue about wind farms are good to have out in the sea or on land or whatever, there are huge areas of the planet that we live on that currently have a huge amount of sales from, I want to call them derelict wind farms. They're just being buried in the ground. That's not environmentally friendly in anybody's books. And the subsidies that we are paying for people not to produce or for companies that have you know, invested in these wind farms, the taxpayer and actually politicians are being taken for a ride. And the Climate Change Committee you know, ought to be holding their heads, hanging their heads in shame. They're not because they think they've got the, the virtue signalers gold medal, if you like, for the past 15, 20 years. But I'm not anti-green. I'm just, I'm just more of a realist, perhaps, in knowing how normal people live their lives and nobody wants to be a major polluter but there's lots of companies who do not want to be beholden to a electric provision infrastructure that may or may not continually 24 7 365 provide electricity at a reasonable cost for them to be able to carry on doing whatever work in whatever sector that they do and actually that's forward planning and in some respects it's emergency stroke crisis planning if you can be off-grid then and still continue, you know, in, a, in an economic way, producing or making or repairing or doing whatever you might do in the work that you do, then you'll be taking steps to do that. Because what's coming over the hill, I do not know. But the safety of our energy provision in the UK should be a primary concern of politicians, both those elected in government and those who aren't in government but are in opposition. And it, it just seems to be there's been a race to be who can be the greenest virtue signaller, doesn't really help in the real world and certainly hasn't helped, I don't think, the UK economy. As I say, I'm not against being environmentally friendly, but I just don't see it should be at the cost of our economic well-being as a nation or as an individual in that respect. What do you say to people like me who'd say that quite a lot of the present Conservative government don't approximate to what we think of as conservative values and that's a constant theme from my readers and listeners that they're absolutely exasperated that so few conservative policies come out yeah it's a trite phrase which i'm going to use the conservative parties of broad church it always has been always will be i was frustrated back in you know i worked for the party for a while in the mid 90s and towards the end of the 90s was falling out of love perhaps with some of the directions that I could see that we were going and some of the things we were concentrating on but I actually thought if I gave up politics and those you know who were good friends who were in politics that you know I was close with and still am you know 20 odd years later you know if we gave up then the nutters really would inherit their asylum depending on where you stick in a, in a spectrum of the conservative party left right or center or whatever and I don't think I'm, I'm actually 
that far over on the right. I actually think I'm quite liberal in the outlook I have on many different aspects of political life or the worldview that I have. If you could give the Prime Minister some advice on what to do to convince the people of Lincoln to give the Conservatives another go, what would you say? What would your prescription be? Well, we do have to stop the boats. That's something that's impacting Lincoln because Scampton, it's outside of my constituency and my next door neighbour's constituency, uh, Sir Edward Lee. But it's only three miles from the centre of Lincoln. Mines greater than mine have said that maybe uh, we might have to take some, I don't want to call it drastic action, but actually we have lots of things in place that the European Court of Human Rights, by leaving it, we wouldn't be putting ourselves, I think, on the wrong side of the moral argument, whether it's temporary or for a short time. But actually, one of the reasons people voted Brexit, yes, in huge numbers in Lincolnshire as a whole, but actually quite you know, well over 60% in my constituency of Lincoln when you take it as a whole, was because they wanted us to be able to make our own decisions. And ultimately, the first thing that we should be doing is defending our borders. That's what we need to do. That's probably the, the first most important thing. The other thing is just be realistic. Not everybody has the the opportunities maybe that those in London have to utilise the transport system that's there and people live their lives differently across our great nation. And you talked about those, the, the sales dropping off in Germany. Well, the sales have sort of dropped off in this country as well. And there might be all various reasons, but one of them is that the early adopters have now all bought EVs. The people who like to be, you know, the first people who bought iPhones, you know, they're probably the same people who, who've bought EVs as well. And um, good luck to them. I'm, I'm very pleased that they have done. But I don't think you can force it on everybody else when there's there's an economic cost to that that's quite severe. Carl McCartney, we approve of you on Planet Normal. We think more common sense in the world would be a good thing. Sending you our very best in the very lovely city of Lincoln. That's a great note to end on. I agree with you, obviously, with your last sentiment. <laughs> Thanks so much. <laughs> really interesting interview there, Alison, by an MP who won't be known to many plan or listeners perhaps but i think what carl has just done there is he's illustrated the number of interesting and agile minds there are on the back benches of all parties actually a lot of the sharpest intellects in parliament are often on the back benches too clever for the front bench is a sort of common refrain and it's a really good time to talk to him why is that because we have had this wave of investment on electric vehicles. We've just had Stellantis, the world's third biggest car maker that owns Vauxhall, of course, Peugeot, Citroën, Fiat. They've just invested £100 million into Ellesmere Port there on Cheshire, just on the Mersey. Been car making there for 60 years. There's going to be car making there for a while more because the first ever EV only vehicle factory is there in Ellesmere Port. Now we've just seen BMW coming in. They're going to make the E. Mini, the new electric, new generation electric Mini, that's going to be made in Cowley in Oxfordshire. More money from BMW for their Swindon factory as well. And yet all the while, even though that's obviously good news, jobs, growth, skilled jobs actually in the car making industry. At the back of my mind, though, while I desperately want to see less pollution, I do think we need to move away from fossil fuels, as I know you do too in general, but whenever a government backs a technology to the hill and almost compels us to adopt one particular technology, it nearly always goes wrong. Think back to the mid-2000s where we all had to get rid of our traditional light bulbs and buy on EU Diktat those fluorescent light bulbs. Do you remember them? Yeah. And they were rubbish. They were dim. I've still got a drawer full of them at home. Mm. Why? Because 
within a couple of years, they were superseded by low-cost, easily accessible, safe LED lights, which are much, much better. So the EU, the European Commission, backed the wrong horse. Why did it do that? Was it because the industry was lobbying them to do a certain thing? Look, whatever the reasons, bureaucrats, government officials, they don't know what technology is going to prevail, certainly not politicians. And yet we seem to be backing this EV technology when there are other technologies knocking around, not least hydrogen, which could be far, far better. We need to let the market, investors, inventors, innovators decide before we rush headlong down the route of one particular technology. These cars are very heavy. That's why there's so many potholes on the roads in the UK at the moment, because there are more EVs. The charging network's a joke. Manufacturers are lying about the range of the cars. There's mass range anxiety. These cars need huge amounts of lithium, cobalt, manganese, copper. They're all found in difficult parts of the world, not least China and the Central African Republic. So I have major reservations about the extent to which we're being compelled as this 2030 ban on the sale of new petrol and diesel cars, it's just new petrol and diesel cars at the beginning, looms. It's almost certain in my mind that 2030 deadline will be pushed back, as it already has been across the European Union. But listen to the language that Carl McCartney is using, Liam. This is a, a very mild-mannered, pleasant, rational person. He is uh, talking about our government's policies. That's the government of which he is a member, are based on green virtue signalling and one-upmanship. It's the de rigueur view to have. There are there, People are frightened of the Climate Change Committee. He said to me, that there are senior members of the government who agree with him that many this absolute headlong rush towards net zero is madness, but they won't speak up. He described his government's own approach to transport and fuel as wing and a prayer. These are astonishing statements, as far as I'm concerned, from a member of the Transport Select Committee, and that committee was trying to get the government to adopt a more pragmatic approach and some of the things that you've just outlined. I learned so much from talking to Carl. I hope listeners enjoyed hearing him as much as I enjoyed talking to him. For example, in Lincoln, where I lived there for a few years, my mother lived there for many years, the transport network is extremely poor. It's not like being in London on the tube. I had to wait for Colin, the coach driver, to come and pick me up to take me into Lincoln for a Friday night. The service was extremely erratic. People are very, very dependent on their cars. And I was talking to Carl about a factory, a plastics factory where I worked in Lincoln to raise some money for summer holidays when I was a student. Carl says Lincoln doesn't have enough electricity now, Liam. But that's the great imponderable, the national grid. Can the national grid take this? Of course it can't. And given how bad we are at sorting out our infrastructure, the idea that we can remake the national grid between now and 2030 is crazy. Look, I'm looking at a WhatsApp on my phone now from a cabinet minister right? When I talked to him or her about a column I wrote last week, we'll put it in the show notes of the episode, about electric vehicles and my concerns, this cabinet minister said, I agree, it's mad. So here we are. And so often in life, the public is ahead of the political and media class. And the public is ahead of the political and media class on this because they're not buying these cars. There's a glut of EVs. EVs are being discounted by dealerships 
in America, in the UK. We're building so many. We haven't got the, we're building them faster than the charging network can keep up. And there is range anxiety. And then there's the cost of these things. There's the sense that their secondhand value is very limited because the lifespan of the battery isn't as long as it's cracked up to be. There has to be some kind of pragmatism here. We can't just finger wag at the public and say, you must do this. And if you don't do this, you're a bad person. You're talking about the second biggest purchase in the vast majority of people's lives, their car, right? And uh, and that's lucky if they're lucky enough to be in a, uh, a home-owning household. If they're not, then it's the biggest purchase in their lives. And the idea that you can just force van drivers whose whole livelihood revolves around their ability to keep their van on the road because they're plumbers or they're bricklayers or they're delivery drivers or man and van or whatever they are. You can't just get them to chuck out their old cars by force of law, by penalising them with ULEs and and other things. It's so tin-eared what the political and media class is doing. And here's my real fear. It's being introduced with such sort of zealotry, such a kind of harshness for any opposing views, calling somebody like me, who has over many years, with a lot of research, raised a long time before a lot of other journalists concerns about particular technologies. I'm called some kind of climate change denier when I'm not at all. I'm just trying to talk about the practical implications of who is going to pay for this, how are they going to pay for it, when are they going to pay for it, the impact on ordinary people's lives. And that interview is a breath of fresh air for me because there you've got Carl McCartney, who is speaking on behalf of ordinary people. But as Carl will know, that's not what gets you on in politics. You get on in politics by basically saying what your party leadership wants you to say. So good on Carl McCartney from the very long tradition of heretical backbenchers who actually speak up for their public. Said Liam, but you know what? I'm starting to hate them. I despise them. Okay, this is recklessness. Okay, this is this could be cost a trillion pounds. We don't have a trillion pounds. We just blew 400 billion on lockdown. And we have this elite cast of person just trotting out these green platitudes with, as Carl just said, absolutely no consideration for the practical application. And the men, women and children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren of our country are going to have to pick up the bill from people like Ed Miliband and all these the gummer, that dreadful man, Lord Debden and whatever he's called, and other sort of Lord Smuggy Guts, proselytising this green creed with just so little regard for the fact that it's not going to work. We would have to double, triple the grid in our country to make any of this work. And as you say, we can barely put a tea bag into a cup of hot water. We're certainly not going to be able to do that by 2030. I actually think we should abandon the net zero target. I think we should just say we are going to be taking sensible steps, making adaptations the whole time. And as the technology becomes available, these deadlines are, they are crazy. They are, I think they are among the most reckless pieces of policy we've ever seen in our country's history. And not that long ago, we know on Planet Normal, don't we, 
our country went into COVID lockdowns without a proper cost-benefit analysis and with politicians bamboozled by certain scientists into believing there was only one possible course of action instead of listening to a wide range of policies. And we are now really, I think, in grave danger of repeating that absolute historic error. You can probably hear, Liam, I'm really upset about it. I think it's, I think it's monstrous. Now on to our listener emails. Your messages sent to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We love to read your thoughts and learn so much from you, the citizens of Planet Normal. And this is from Leone. None of the mainstream media seems to have picked up on the fact that this so-called conservative government is going to make criminals of us all. If passed, the energy bill going through Parliament without any meaningful opposition will mean that EPC inspectors, who even now are not uniform in their assessments, flats in a block being given different ratings by different inspectors, will have the power to force owners and landlords to carry out works to improve the carbon footprint of a property, e.g. installing heat pumps, smart meters, insulation, etc before they can rent or sell their house or flat. And if they fail to comply, they could be fined up to £15,000 and face criminal conviction with up to 12 months in prison. Once all our appliances are on smart meters, the government will have the power to cut off our electricity if, in its opinion, we are using too much, all in the name of improving the planet's emissions by a maximum of 1% for the UK, but taking away individual freedoms and impacting the poor most of all. People living in blocks of flats might find their flats unsaleable if major works are required to the block. It's cladding problems with knobs on. Someone needs to start making waves about this. Love the podcast, says Leone. Great email there from Leone. Let me read this, Alison, from Richard. Dear co-pilot, says Richard, it's great to have you back after your summer break. We're glad to be back. With the anniversary of Liz Truss becoming Prime Minister, I'd be really interested to hear your analysis of what went wrong for her. I voted for Truss and I'm a supporter of hers, so I'm biased. But with the passage of time, I find more and more that she was right about, as we've seen last week with the pessimistic OBR forecast being overturned. In particular, I'd like to hear Liam's verdict on what precisely spooked the markets. No pressure. (laughs) There seems to be no agreement about whether it was the size of the energy bailout or an increase in borrowing at the wrong time or a general vibe of recklessness. It would be great to hear your views on the pod or in the paper if you can bear returning to this painful issue. All I can say to you, Richard, is watch this space. And this is from a Planet Normal stalwart, Dr. Claire. Can you believe that when people in the UK are struggling to feed their families and pay energy bills, our useless and out-of-touch Prime Minister is handing £1.6 billion for green rubbish to a country that has a space and nuclear weapons programme, neither of which they need, funded from our hard-earned taxes? When will this virtue signalling end? And so that's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views, Email of the week, it's my turn, and it has to go to Leone. Great email there from you, Leone. So send us to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk an email with mug winner in the subject heading with your home address, and we'll send you a Planet Normal mug. If you enjoy Planet Normal, please do leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and please do send us in some emails because we're getting lots of great ones, but we can always do with some more. Genuinely, we learn a huge amount from you, and as Liam will tell you, I just nick it and put it in my column. 
<laughs> I wasn't going to say. And as we speed away from our beloved planet normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bajard. Hooray! Elliot Lampett. Hooray! Cass Ho. Hooray! And Louisa Wells. Hooray! Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other until next week. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.